Hey guys, welcome back to Teacher's Pet Podcast. I am super excited to be back. Uh, we had a little bit of a break while I was on vacation throughout the Southeast. Uh, we recorded a podcast with Josh Flores while we were in Alabama. That was super fun to do. Um, but I'm glad to be back home and start pumping out new episodes once again. Um, I'm equally as excited for our guest today, Miss Alexis Dickey. Uh, Alexis and I were classmates while we were in college, and I am going to let her introduce herself and talk a little about uh, what she does. All right. Hey, um, so I'm Alexis. I teach at Norman North, and I've actually been there ever since we graduated, so the past two, two and a half years, and I've been with ninth grade English for those two years. Mm. Yeah, uh, we were just talking about how fun freshmen can be. Um, that is a wild, uh, zany age to teach, but we'll get into that in just a minute. Um, I want to talk a little bit first off about your background. Um, can you talk about where you come from and how that kind of influenced your choice to become a teacher? Yeah, of course. So I came from a very, very tiny town in Oklahoma. I guess a lot of people do, whatever. Um, we lived in the very southeast corner of Oklahoma. If anybody's familiar like with Broken Bow or Beaver's Bend, uh, it's kind of that area. Um, coming up to the city and to like suburban schools was a big drastic change. And seeing how many opportunities and everything that's available for the students uh, in these bigger schools absolutely blows my mind because we had no opportunities, no like astronomy classes or anything like that. It's very basic. Yeah. Um, did that, how did that affect your choice to uh, become a teacher? Well, coming from a small town, you don't really have many options or at least you're not presented with a lot of options. Um, I mean, the top few are, you know, teacher, doctor, nurse, a welder, a farmer. Um, they just didn't educate us to let us know that there were actually other things out there. And so I'm very, like, focused and goal-oriented. So I decided I was going to be a teacher, and that's what I did. And so I did all four years of college with that and got out, and then I'm like, hey, there's actually other things I could have done with my life, but you know, I like teaching, so it's good. That's uh, that's an interesting note because I I was you know we can talk about this a little bit. You uh, you were talking to me right before we started about thinking about possibly doing something else besides teaching. Um, is that solely because not right now, obviously, but at some point in the future? Um, is that because that's just something you want to do or is that uh, a combination of, of that plus everything that goes along with teaching? It's a little bit of a combination of things, uh, more so of what I think that I might like to do for the rest of my life. Uh, I thought teaching would be something I'd want to do for my entire life, but now I'm not so sure. Um, teaching at times just gives me a like, lot of anxiety especially when we come back for the new school year, like I have a ton of anxiety because they're new kids and I don't know what to expect with them and how are relationships going to go. And it's just a lot. So I thought that maybe something else might be more peaceful for me. <laughs> um, 
turnover teacher turnover in Oklahoma is one of the biggest problems um, that we that we face because a lot of people get into the classroom um, and they don't have a they don't have a lot of support um, because typically the way you're handled at least as a new teacher a lot of times is it feels like uh, it feels like you're you someone's breathing down your neck you're always getting evaluated and looked at and everything else. Um, have you, have you felt that pressure the first uh, couple years while you've been in the classroom? I actually haven't. Um, I came in at the very, very end of my internship uh, right after Thanksgiving break because their teacher at Norman North left. Um, she moved to a different school in the district for various reasons, but it ended up being a very good thing. But um, that first year with juniors, I did feel a little bit of that pressure from my head English principal. But since moving down to ninth grade, my principal seems to really trust me and trust what I do. And he kind of just lets me have free reign. Uh, there was one semester he came in on like the day before the last day of school, like before, I guess before testing started. And he was like, hey, I haven't observed you at all this year and I just completely forgot. So I'm just going to pop in tomorrow. And I'm like, okay, great, cool. We're just like going over the test, but, uh, and that's just how it's been since then. So. Well, that's encouraging to hear. Um, yeah, that, uh, I definitely, that first year I was teaching, um, you know, I was teaching an AP class and everything else. And I felt like I, there was a principal stopping in like every other day. And, uh, you know, having people stop in to like watch you is not a bad thing whenever you're receiving feedback, right? Constructive things that you can build off of. Um, but unfortunately, so I tell me if I'm wrong. Um, I think there's a big gap between your large districts that have a lot of people applying for positions. Um, it seems a little bit more competitive and maybe that's why people are always coming in to watch you because they could always go find somebody else. Whereas in smaller districts, like where you came from, they kind of just have to take whoever they have. Um, am, I, am I wrong about that? I'm not really sure if I can like really respond to that just because I haven't taught in a small school. I mean, I went to school, so, you know, I can see it from that perspective of like being a student there. But with small schools, you don't have, at least my school didn't have a lot of turnover because it's a tiny little town. There's nothing around it. It's three hours to the nearest city. Uh, what else are they going to do? Right. So we didn't have a lot of teacher turnover in a small town. Mm. Um, let's dive into you're You're obviously in a large district. Um, is do you guys utilize PLCs a lot? That's a good question. So the uh, high school that I interned at used PLCs and did so amazingly. They were very collaborative, uh, worked together really well. The school I'm currently at does not do that so well. Uh, we do have a few PLC days that we'll use, but for the most part, it seems a lot more difficult to get the teachers to collaborate. Uh, can you... Can you talk about why you think that is? Well, there is a good portion of the English department that are older teachers. They're not super new like I am. 
And they're kind of set in their ways of how they're going to do things, of how they've always done things. They've taught the same grade level for years upon years. And so I feel like that kind of creates this separation of them wanting to just do the same old thing and, you know, us wanting to try new things and be experiment experimental and stuff. Um, is that is that frustrating at times? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially when I first got there because I was like, yeah, I want to like get everyone together. I want to collaborate. I want to know what, everything y'all do and I'll share everything that I'm doing. And it, it didn't happen. Um, teachers at my school tend to stay in their rooms more instead of like coming out to socialize more. So that was a big change from the school I interned at. But now I've kind of just gotten used to it. Well, that's, uh, I mean, I, you know, I'm glad that you've, you know, acclimated to it, but I, uh, I'm really lucky because I have a really great team and also department around me. And especially, I mean, I don't know if nor how long Norman was online or if they were anything like that, but we were in person pretty much the entire year. And, uh, I don't know how we would have made it if we didn't have that kind of teamwork. Um, can you talk a little bit about what the last year was like for you as a teacher? Oh, goodness. The last year. I mean, it was only, what, your second full-time year teaching. Right. And, and the first one got cut short um, by the pandemic, and obviously we had to go through an entire year of, of dealing with it. Um, how, how did you handle all of it? This might sound a little crazy, but once we really got into the school year, it wasn't too bad for me. The first two weeks, we started out online. From there, we went to an A-B schedule, so we didn't have all of our students together in the building at once. That was interesting because I had to do the same lesson like eight different times, so that was fun. But uh, once we moved away from that and came full-fledged back in school, it kind of turned a little more into a normal school year. Uh, there would be issues with a lot of kids being absent for extended periods of time, but with us transitioning to Canvas and having a really big online presence with the kids and them already knowing how to navigate it, it was easier uh, than what it could have been. We did have a lot more kids that failed this year or had really low grades, and that was just the hardest part is getting them motivated and keeping them where they, they just care about school and they're going to keep trying or getting them caught up. And I had kids that told me that, I mean, it's ninth grade. So straight A students can come in and be BC students once they get to high school. But I had several, several kids that should have been getting A's and they just weren't. Um, there's a lot to unpack because I think what you just talked about is really important. Um, why, why were those kids that should have been getting A's not doing well in your mind? I think they just had too much going on. It's been a really big change of the school year. Uh, ninth grade is already really difficult for the kids coming in. Uh, it's a completely new environment. So it's, a normal year, it's difficult for them. A normal year, I'll have kids that uh, struggle who have never struggled before, and parents are trying to figure out why. And, you know, we're just telling them, just hang in there. It'll get better after this year. This is just a learning curve. So 
throwing COVID into it really just made it worse. Uh, a lot of them, you know, had different things on their mind, like deaths in the family or close friends that may have like family friends that have may have died or been really sick and things like that. And them getting sick, you know, they don't want to do work when they're sick. So getting caught back up makes it really difficult. Um, so this is kind of multi-tiered question then. What, what did you, did you change anything to try and mitigate those problems you were just talking about? And on the opposite side, do you feel like your district did enough to accommodate the needs of their students, uh, especially during this crazy time? I think the district did a, a, as good of a job as they could. I don't know what else they could have done better, really. They were very accommodating on the students and knowing that, you know, they were, students were having a hard time turning in their work and everything. So they made sure their teachers were very accommodating in that aspect. Uh, my rule for like late work and things like that was we went by quarters. So after the first quarter, you had to make sure everything was turned in. Um, after that, I wouldn't accept it. Now, for the kids that were really struggling, I always told them, if you need extra time, you just have to tell me that you need extra time. Um, but unfortunately, not a lot of them actually did that. Uh, why do you think they struggle communicating their needs like that then? Because obviously they probably know that they need it, but why would they still not come and do that? Um, thinking of a couple different reasons, even just putting myself in their shoes of like me being in high school or ninth grade. Um, one, they might have realized that they probably weren't going to do it anyways, even if they asked for the extension. Uh, and two, there's this odd barrier between students and teachers of where they don't feel comfortable coming up and talking to us that much. Uh, that did seem to be alleviated a little bit this year because they seemed a lot more comfortable emailing us or messaging me on Canvas. And so that the technology really helped with the communication there. But there's still that disconnect between the teachers and students, especially when they're so young and they they just don't know how to stand up for themselves. Let's run with this for a second. Um, you know, the the current generation of students uh, coming through schools, there is a I was I was hanging out with my brother over the this last weekend for Fourth of July, and he's about five years younger than me. He was born in two thousand, um, and there is a very distinct, almost kind of cutoff point. I think literally, basically, right around his age and younger. Um, they're really the first group of kids that grew up in a world with things like. Uh, smartphones and social media and you know everything just bombarding them constantly so i i definitely had the same thing kids would it'd be 10 o'clock at night and i would get a message on canvas from a student you know asking a question about an assignment i'm like well i'm glad they're doing it <laughs> but it's 10 o'clock i'm trying to sleep <laughs> um that issue of standing up for yourself of feeling confident speaking up what you think um, is a major, I think, barrier for a lot of students now. 
they're really good at having an opinion and uh, being loud and shouting about it, but they're not really good at having a discussion, I guess. Um, how do you try to build those skills in your classroom? That was really difficult to do this semester or this whole school year because, because of COVID, because we need to keep our distance. We really couldn't do any group activities and group activities are where I really try to foster that face-to-face uh, -face connection. Uh, I've learned, uh, I'm sure you probably remember it, uh, the monster, no, the alien assignment, the big alien project that Kunkel had us do. It's a great project. Yes. Uh, if I have a quiet class and I give that to them and they work on it with as a group and everything, it's like they just open up after that. So those creative group assignments really help to get them where they're actually talking to each other face to face and not just on social media or Snapchat or whatever it is the kids use these days. So uh, that that's helps, but it was very difficult this past year, very difficult to get them to have class discussions and everything like that without having that small group setting. Yeah. Um, I don't know about you guys. We, we, had everyone wearing masks in our building until the majority of our uh, staff was vaccinated. And, uh, you know, obviously for safety and everything else, completely understandable. But definitely, um, as a teacher, I don't know about you, but it's nice to be able to see a student's face whenever you're talking to them and also whenever you're talking to a whole class. It's much easier to tell how something is going whenever you can see them. Whereas this year, you know, I'd ask a question that was open-ended for the whole class and anybody could answer, and I'd have to sit there for a minute waiting for somebody to decide to answer. Um, you know, I one way that I've, I've started doing it, um, I've always used Socratic circles since I was a student teacher, and I've always found those to be highly effective. Um, do you utilize that kind of constructive debate format at all in your classroom to foster communication? I have not really done so with my English classes. Uh, I really should and I really need to, but with how much I need to get through, how much content I need to get through throughout the year, it's just difficult to make time for that, uh, which is kind of horrible to say. Uh, we did do philosophical chairs and Socratic seminars a lot when I taught AVID. Mm. And it was really good for them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you just hit on something that I think we should talk about. So you just said, um, I have a bunch of content that I have to get through. Um, I have, you know, X, Y, and Z that I have to do. Um, so I don't have time for this. Where are, A, um, is your curriculum dictated by your district. Let's start with that. Oh, yes. Uh, for the most part, yes. Um, we have books or novels that the, I don't know if the district has chosen them or just like the high schools in general. I know that all of ninth grade did the same novels and things like that. Now, what you do with those novels is up to you as long as you cover the standards, but they did want you to hit on specific subjects, specific novels. Uh, have you ever asked about their reasoning for picking those or thought about it yourself? 
Yes, I have, because uh, one of the ones I want us to cover at ninth grade is Romeo and Juliet. And I was never a fan of Romeo and Juliet. My high school English teacher thought it was stupid, and I had her for three years. So here I am kind of thinking the same thing. Uh, so I did question them on that, on if I could do a different uh, act, a different play of Shakespeare, or just something completely different altogether. And it was kind of just a no. It was kind of a, this is what we've always done, of a, you need to go talk to the uh, English, the district person for English. And that was that. So hmm. kind of just stuck in what they've always done. Um. So curriculum is pretty much handed to you. Do you, so are they, I guess my question is with regard to what they're doing then, um, are they trying to hit certain themes throughout the course of the year? Is that their main intent? Um, not that I've really noticed. They just want us to cover certain novels like Animal Farm, Romeo and Juliet, The Odyssey, uh, Fahrenheit 451. And then we're free to make up our curriculum as we go. That. Hmm. That's uh interesting to me. I guess. Uh, not not. I don't, doesn't sound like you can really do a whole lot about that. Um. So I where I'm going with this, right? Um, and I my listeners probably hate to hear about it because I talk about it pretty much every episode. Um, this year my my English team together, we, we changed a whole bunch of stuff, but we uh, changed our grading system to standards-based grading, which kind of completely changed how we did everything. Um, it was no longer about, well, we have to read Fahrenheit. It's like, why, you know, what, what's the point of reading Fahrenheit with relation to what we're actually grading them on? Um, and so, we, we got a lot more out of what our grades were for our students and like where they actually had deficiencies and things like that. But it also kind of freed us up to really talk about, you know, the, the kind of lasting truths from the books that we read. Um, what kind of grading do you utilize in your, in your classroom? Um, and have you ever thought about switching it to something besides what you do? Well, I love the idea of standard-based grading, but no one at North does that, so I don't really know how I would transition to that on my own. Uh, although I'll, I'll teach you right now. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, but yeah, we uh, used to do percentages, which I hated. Like daily work was this percentage and all that, because I'm not a math person. I'm an English person. I don't know what any of those percentages mean. So we switched to points this year, and I like points, but. Uh, just giving certain assignments more points than others is more easy. It's easier for me to understand, and I think for the kids to at least understand of where their grade is coming from. How do you determine things like point values for assignments? So it's interesting. Last year, um, well, okay, so not this past year, but the year before when COVID came, uh, I tried to do like a gameology classroom. And that concept really says that kids uh, put more value in things that have higher points. And so the assignments that I was making then, you know, it was like 500 points, like ridiculous amounts. Um, 
but it was all scaled accordingly. So this year I didn't do that. This year I did all of my like basic daily work to be like 25. Uh, and then essays and projects were anywhere from 50 to 75. And then their final, I think was like a hundred. So it's all pretty low for me. Um, I don't think that one big thing should dictate their entire grade. So that's just how I break it up. That's what makes sense to me. No, I mean, I think that if you're going to do a point value system, then scaling your work is obviously smart. Um, so you said, you know, this is, I, I'm going to, you don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, just because I know that obviously you're an employee there. Um, I Norman is typically perceived as a pretty progressive district um, in terms of their practices because of things like OU being right there and their connection to their program. Uh, the K-20 Center is located in Norman as well, and that means you have a ton of resources available. Um but I, I have colleagues and friends that work at the other high school. Um, and there seems to be a very distinct kind of approach between, between the two schools, I guess. Um, why do you think that is? I think that um, the high school that you're talking about, they have a lot more younger teachers, uh, they're not as older, not as set in their ways as it is with the school I'm at. Um, I can count on one hand how many teachers we have anywhere as close to my age. Mm. How? So I, I have the same, you know, same thing. Uh, you know, younger teachers are generally more open or newer teachers, right? Because there's a there's a lady on my team that's in her 40s, but it's only her third year teaching. Um, Younger teachers tend to be uh, more willing to experiment and try new things. And I'm lucky in that regard because my principal basically says, do it and see if it works. And if it doesn't, then we'll go back to the drawing board. Um, I guess my question is, is uh, how, do you, how do you try to communicate with, with those teachers that might not agree with you or be set in your ways um, and try to push them to maybe do something different? Or do you, I guess? That's a hard question because I really don't think that I do. Uh, when I first got came to North, I really wanted to push for it, but I was so young and so new that I didn't feel like I had much of a voice. These past two years, I've been working with ninth graders, and the ninth grade team is a pretty amazing at North. They are the difference. Um, they're different from the rest of the English department. They're a little more collaborative. So what I did this past year is I'm very much an organizer and a planner. So I just made like my whole outline of what I wanted to do, and I sent it to them, and I was like, hey, here's this. What do you think? And one of the teachers was like, oh, this is great. Now I don't have to do any of the planning and I'm going to do all of this. And so it worked out for me that way of kind of putting the step forward and creating the stuff first and sharing it. And then everyone kind of followed on board then. But that's just ninth grade and they're a lot, lot more. Oops. 
Sorry, can you hear me? Yeah, you're good. Did you hear my phone going off? Yes. Oh, crap. I'm sorry. <laughs> Wait one second. I'm going to have to edit this episode so much. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. So um, what you just talked about, right, is you you essentially made a curriculum map for your entire school year. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes. That is the exact same approach um, that we took. Uh, the district actually required every single team to make one for all their classes. And I think one thing that is great about that, A, is that, you know, whenever you're a new teacher, um, that first year coming in, especially if you don't have strong collaboration or you're teaching something that you're not used to, you have to build everything from the ground up. And that can feel like you're drowning because you're, you're basically going on, you're going like week by week, day by day to some degree. Um, whereas if teams and schools already have that map in place, they can come in and say, all right, I don't have to worry about making everything, right? I already have an idea of doing it. And that is part of what e equipped me to have the success that I had this year because I said, all right, we already have all this stuff. How can we make it better and rethink it? Um, I think that districts would be, and this is directed at everyone, I think districts would be very well served by making these things um, and encouraging that collaboration, but also encouraging teachers to uh, tweak tweak those maps and see what they can do better year to year. Because otherwise, it, it's like you said, it gets very stagnant. Um, so Norman is actually doing a little bit of that now. Uh, they're starting from the middle school and pushing up. So it's going to be a year by year basis. But I actually, at the end of the school year, worked uh, with another teacher to create a blueprint course uh, for new teachers that come into ninth grade to teach ninth grade English. And it starts out with like a very in-depth unit of lesson plans for them to do. And then it gets a little more sparse from there. Uh, they don't have to stick to it. They don't have to do any of the things, any of the lessons that we've put in there. Of course, we do ask that they cover the same novels. Um, but I think it's going to be so helpful. Uh, when I came in to teach juniors, I had no idea what I was doing. I interned with freshmen, jumped up to juniors. I didn't know what they were supposed to know. So having a blueprint, I think, is really great. Yeah. Well, and also that, that whole you know thing you're talking about, about trying to build a bridge maybe with teachers who are a little bit more indignant to change is making something like that and offering it up, you know, it's almost like an olive branch to some degree to say, Hey, I want to work with you. Let's, let's put all of our stuff together and see what we have here. Um, what do we want to get into next? There's just so much we could talk about. Let's talk about, um, I don't want to get into that with you. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to put you in a bad position. Um, so what do you think about uh, education in Oklahoma at this point? Uh, getting worse or getting better? I think it's not going really anywhere. Um, it's <laughs> I think it's kind of going down a little uh, just because we didn't really ever get the funding that we asked for with the whole teacher walkout thing. Um, got a little bit, but... Well, um, interesting note. So I had... 
Forrest Bennett on, who's a state rep, probably about a month ago now. Um, and we were talking about how, you know, there was – we can talk about this a little bit more in a second um, – is that there's a perception that after the walkout that education is better, I think, amongst the general public, right? Teachers are paid more, which is a plus, um, and that there was funding allocated for schools. However – all that funding has now been legislated out. So all that new funding that was there is now gone. Um, and I feel like most people in Oklahoma probably don't know that. And so whenever inevitably here in the next five years, the exact same thing happens, um, they're going to blame teachers and everyone else for wanting more. Um, do you feel like the community that you're in um, is supportive of teachers, especially through everything that's been going on? Yes and no. So I thought that our community was very supportive of teachers. Um, and I think that they, they still are, but we did have a big portion of families in Norman um, that didn't like what, how we were handling COVID. They didn't like, the AB schedule, they didn't like kids being virtual. And a lot of teachers felt like the, the community of Norman no longer cared for our safety and just wanted their kids in school as a as being babysitters or whatever so they didn't have to take care of their kids. So it's kind of skewed my perception of our community. Yeah, that's sad to hear. Um It, the irony, and we've heard this all the time, is that, you know, right at the beginning of the pandemic, whenever students were forced online, I think that a lot of the general public gained a new appreciation for the amount of time and energy it takes to help kids learn. Um, and, like, you know, parents parents have their own priorities. Their kids are their biggest priority. They have jobs that they have to go to. Um and so there's there's obvious pressure on everyone involved, but I feel like as everything drug on more and more, um, all that praise for uh, teachers are heroes and everything else uh, really turned sour pretty quick. Um, how do you think we go about building? How do you think we go about building better trust between communities and educators? I'm not really sure. Um, I mean, it would be helpful if like parents came in and observed classes to see actually what we do, but I don't think that's ever gonna happen. Um, but besides that, I, I don't know. Now, most of the parents that I did talk to this year were very appreciative of me. I got more thank yous and I appreciate yous this past year than I, than I have, but I mean, it's not saying a lot because I just started. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I don't know. I think that uh, I think that idea about parents coming to watch classes is actually a, a great idea. Um, however, like we said, with jobs and everything else, it makes it makes it a little bit more difficult. But I also think that that speaks to something about our society that uh, we don't we don't really value um, education the way that we should, like. Theoretically, if a parent says, "I want to go, uh, I want to go 
be with my kid in school for a day. That's a pretty uh, weird, big ask for some reason for for companies and employers. Um, anyway, that's a side note. Um, let's talk about technology in school. Uh, does Norman have any rules specifically regarding things like cell phones? Yes. So um, I guess it'd be almost two years ago now when COVID hit that spring semester, our principal, head principal, decided that we were going to push really hard for no cell phones in the classrooms. Um, she encouraged us to have any little cell phone pouches or whatever. But our motto was silent and away, silent and put away. So it could stay in the kid's bag if the teacher wanted to not take it up, but it had to be silent and put away. And we really hit hard on that before spring break happened and they never came back. Um, this past year, we still had kind of had that motto of silent and put away, but it was like, that doesn't, that doesn't work for me. Um, I'm not the teacher that can see a phone and just like immediately go up and like either take it from them or tell them to put it up. I would rather have them put it in my little cubby at the beginning of classroom and then me not worry about it for the rest of the class. And they don't worry about it for the rest of the class. But I, I couldn't do that this past year. I was not, I was told specifically no, or preferably not. Um, so it is on the forefront of their minds at least. And I'm hoping that that picks back up this next year. Whenever students are completely disengaged from their phone, as, as in like putting it in, in a cubby, uh, what kind of changes do you see in your classroom? That's a difficult question because I didn't get to see much of it before, um, before we were out for COVID. The students definitely talk to each other more. Um, so it might not be a, oh, they don't have their phone, so they're only going to pay attention to me or they're going to pay attention to me better. That might not be the case, but they're at least not on their phones and they're at least engaging face-to-face -face with people. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's that, you know, stuff that we were talking about earlier about having kids, you know, talk to each other and engage and talk about challenging things. Um, now, is, uh, is Norman one-to-one -one in terms of student technology? Yes, we are. Okay, so with that big shift to Canvas this year, we, we did the same thing. Um, all of our students have Chromebooks. They're all hooked up. And there was a big encouragement, especially towards the beginning of the year, whenever they were still talking about how does COVID transmit to not hand out paper assignments. Um, one problem I see with the inundation of technology is the exact same thing we were talking about just now is that kids aren't even looking at each other, right? Uh, they're looking at a screen for six hours a day on a computer, and then they'll go home and sit on their phone. Um, do you view the integration of technology as a good thing or a bad thing? And how are you making sure that you're using technology in a way that is good and productive for your students? So the topic of technology is actually kind of funny to me because before COVID hit, we were really pushing for, hey, utilize their laptops. Did you know the laptops could do this? You could use this in your lessons. And they were like really pushing for it because, I mean, one-to-one -one for Norman is relatively new. Maybe uh, three or four years ago is when it actually got implemented. Um, but after COVID hit, 
and now we were just on our computers, the question started popping up of, well, how much screen time is good and how much is bad? And so I really think that technology is a great addition to the classroom if it's used wisely. Um, it's got to be used in moderation just like everything else. So we can do things on our laptops that we can't do on paper, and then we can do things on paper that we can't do on our laptop. Mm. I, Whenever I was talking to Josh Flores, I was like, I am going to not use the Chromebooks as much as possible uh, this next year because, I don't know, I just I feel like um, – we're almost turning kids into zombies, which that's that is the antithesis of everything uh, that that we stand for, um, you know. And that goes back to the whole model of education that is still prevalent in almost every single school district is that we're we're using an industrial age model of education. Um, to try and teach kids in the 21st century and it just doesn't work. Um, so I wanted to bring up this nice little list. Um, it was a survey of employers from 2020, right? And we don't want to look at our students as products that we're just trying to like push out to employers and things like that. However, these are the the skills that people are going to need as the world continues to automate and become more complex. Um, and the top three skills for people to be successful, essentially, uh, number one is complex problem solving, two is critical thinking, and three is creativity. Uh, do you think that the way we educate our kids currently uh, fosters those things? Absolutely not. Okay. Uh, I, I do think that here in the past several years, there's been a more push for saying, hey, you know, do some creative writing, do some more uh, critical analysis with them. Uh, you know, if you need to take several days off from teaching standards to do that, then do that. Uh, but I, I think that I saw this on like your Facebook where you posted this list and people were talking and like, I agree. The structure of education in our schools now is not going to create those types of students, the, those types of employees. And it's going to be really difficult to get them to do that. Well, and it's, it's interesting now, you know, in, in the future, the next 50 years, um, the world is going to look so vastly different. You know, 50 years ago from today was what, 1971, the internet didn't exist. Uh, <laughs> the, the change in the world is exponential. Um, and it seems like those three things should just be not not the goal of us making them em good employees, but just making them good people. Um, and I don't know how we've gotten away for so long with not building that in our students. Right. Um, and I think you just have to have a complete overhaul of the entire system, but I don't know how we do that without resources and everything else. Um, one other one on there that I wanted to talk about. Um, number six is emotional intelligence. Um, social emotional intelligence is super, super important to developing kids. Um, however, I don't think that there's ever really been a time in our society where we did a good job of helping our kids in that area. So that being said, in your classroom, 
how do you try to help kids build emotional intelligence? So I think the problem with um, not teaching and fostering this uh, idea of emotional intelligence comes from like punishment. So a, a kid's acting out and your older teachers are immediately going to want to punish them, send them to the office, write them up, do whatever. Uh, I think the emotional intelligence comes into play when you start asking them what's actually going on. Like, we need to figure out, we need to sit down and let's figure out why you're feeling this way, why you're acting this way. And then we can fix the problem instead of just, I don't know, putting a bandaid on it, beating it out of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, like actually taking time to one-on-one -on -one with the kids and talk to them about what they're feeling and how to deal with those emotions. Because we think that that's just something that toddlers need to learn and to deal with because I mean toddlers throw tantrums because they don't know how to communicate their wants and their feelings. And that shouldn't stop with elementary age students. It should continue on up through middle school and high school. I mean, everything's changing. Yeah. That whole attitude that, uh, by this age, kids should know how to act is, uh, pretty asinine whenever we think about the, uh, the understanding that we have now about, the human brain and how it develops, right? Um, young ladies, typically, they're, it's obvious they're already smarter than young men because their brains uh, are usually finished developing for the most part around the time they're 21 to 22. Whereas men, it's until like they're 25. So really, I've only been smart, I guess, for about a year. Um, but that, yeah, that whole concept of uh, taking the time to talk to kids and help them work through problems is super important. You know, one thing I, I made the mistake of doing in the past was I would ask those questions, but I would do it sometimes in front of other people. Um, because that's what was effective on me as a student, right, was being called out. Uh, but a lot of students now, I don't think, respond to that nearly as well. Um, and so taking that time is just absolutely vital. Right. I had one student, I don't know if I'll ever forget him. Um, it was two years ago, last year, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I had a student, he was low achieving. Uh, he could he could read, like I knew he could read. And he was enjoying this book. He was actually reading a book and then kind of enjoying it. And like getting really mad at his group mates because it was a literature circles. Mm. And they were trying to get him to read more, to talk about it and everything. And he just got so mad about it. And so like I went over there and I was trying to alleviate the situation. And I eventually took him outside and started talking to him and asking him like, you know, why? Why do you feel this way? Like, do you not like what plans do you have? Because all of this that I'm doing is for your future. Like, do you plan on graduating? Do you plan on going to college? What do you plan on doing with your life? And he had no idea. And it was just so heartbreaking. And uh, luckily it was at the end of class because after that I kind of went to the counselor's office and cried a bit. But it was, it was really heartbreaking. But after that talk with him, and I guess of like actually showing how much I cared of how much it bothered me, he was so much better in class. Now, he didn't do enough work to pass, unfortunately, um, because he didn't show that he could, you know, reach the standards that I had that the state has set, but he was more communicative. He was happier. 
and everything just worked out so much better after that, after that encounter and that interaction, instead of me just getting mad at him and sending him to the office or something. That what you just talked about, right? Um, you know, because you don't know how that's going to affect him down the line, probably in a very positive way, generally speaking, because I'm going to guess before then his perception of his teachers um, caring for him was probably not the best. Um, it is so important. Unfortunately, I, I think there's not enough teachers that view it this way, right? Is that every kid needs an anchor, right? Um, especially those kids that are coming from a really rough background. School a lot of times is that place that they're, that they're their safest, essentially. Um, and I wish that every teacher viewed their job to be that anchor for that kid, right? That whenever, you know, you might've been his freshman teacher, but whenever he's a senior and he's having a hard time, the person he's going to come talk to is you, even though you're not his teacher anymore. Um, I wish that that attitude was way more prevalent. Um, we're going to start wrapping up here because we're getting close to an hour. Um, can you talk about who was the most influential teacher in your life um, and why did they stick out to you so much? The most influential teacher in my life um, would have had to have been Miss Scarborough. She was my um, honors and then AP English teacher for three years and my AP psychology teacher. Um, so one year I literally had her back to back um, and had her for three straight years. The only thing she didn't teach is my freshman English. She was not influential in the way that you're, you're probably hoping. She wasn't this like great like teacher who was like, you know, super connective and like wanting to talk to me and, you know, find out how I was. Um, she was what my school was missing. And that was actually like a good teacher who can actually teach and wants you to learn. Um, and that, that's what she was. She was super scary. We were scared to talk. Uh, <laughs> kind of loosened up a little bit. We would whisper. But uh, she just had this aura about her that was like, you know, don't mess with me. She would go off on students. Um, unfortunately, she kind of called some of us stupid, especially the kids out in the hallway that didn't take her class. Um, yeah. Not the influential teacher that you might have in mind when you ask me that question, but she's the one that I'm never going to forget. I think that's an interesting note um, is that even somebody that even somebody that isn't good at teaching can still uh, leave a bad taste in your mouth, potentially, if they don't handle themselves the right way. Uh, yeah, I have a couple of those as well. Last thing, and then we will wrap this up. Um, what are what are the three things you feel like have to change in Oklahoma um, to make education what it should be? The three things that need to change. It's a really broad question, I know. Um, and you can talk about you could talk about your individual school. You could talk about your district. You can talk about the state as a whole. Uh, what are the three most pressing issues that have to get fixed um, to get us on the right track? 
I think that more uh, financing is obviously one of the top three, which place I would put it, I don't know. Uh, but not just financing, not just raising teacher salaries, but also giving us more things in the classroom. Um, letting us, you know, take the kids to go do field trips. You know, field trips are still fun in high school. They're still educational. Uh, so I think that would be really great if we could actually fund classrooms and not just teachers. I mean, that would be great. Don't get me wrong. But actually funding the classroom and funding the kids. Um, I, I do wish that one of the top things could be uh, just a restructuring of the schools as a whole. But that's a very difficult idea and notion of like how to go about doing that. And let's be honest, Oklahoma is not the innovative state. We're not the one that's like up here making changes for the nation. But it would be great if we could um, innovate and change how we looked at and how we structured classes. Um, I know there's a school in California that grouped their classes together. So like math and English would be together. And the entire semester was building up to a project that incorporated math and English standards. And I think that's like a great idea. And it actually hits on like those top three things that employees are wanting or employers are wanting. Because uh, they have to think critically. They have to you know, do all this thinking and activities that our classes don't do because of our structured, you know, first through seventh hour. So if we could restructure, that would be great. Those are really my two things. And then collaborating. Collaborating is your third one? Yep. What did you talk about in there? I, I think that all three of those are really good. I loved your second one talking about restructuring. Um, I think that we're, we're going to end on this, but I think that uh, we have to, we really have to fundamentally change the way that we look at what school should be. Um, I think some of the things that you just talked about are a great place to start. So change never happens until you try it. Um, and I hope that, uh, I hope that you don't leave the field cause you're a great teacher and you're a lot of fun to be around. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming on today. It has been a great time to everyone who, uh, listened to my annoying voice for the last, uh, hour or so. Thank you guys for tuning in for another episode of teacher's pet. Make sure you go check out the episode with Josh Flores and tell your friends, uh, we will be back on very soon. Thank you guys. Have a great day.